Hello, and welcome to the official podcast of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Sedalia, Missouri. In this sermon, Pastor Chris Guffey begins his new series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. Join us as we dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 4. No regrets, no reserves, and no retreats. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse number 1, a series we're going to be in, a chapter we're going to be in here for a couple of weeks. I want to just begin it this morning with just one little sentence, one little verse. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. On July the 20th, 356 B.C., the world was introduced to a child, a a special young child who would become one of the most influential and important figures in the history of the world. He was born in Pella, Macedonia to Philip II and to his mother, Olympias. The Macedonian Empire had a new hero, and his name, you might have guessed it, was Alexander the Great. He's gone down in history uh, as one of the most memorable and important rulers in the history of time, as one of the great military tacticianers that the world has ever seen. And it really all begins, his life begins, the legend, I should say, of his life begins with his birth. Philip II was king of Macedonia, which was a fairly vast empire for the time, yet at the same time it was a relatively small kingdom in light of the great superpower of the day, which was the vast Persian imperial dominance, the, Ver- the Persian Empire. Philip had, uh, uh, like any great man of his time, had eight wives, and, uh, or at least we believe that's how many he had. He might have had a few more than that. But one of those wives seemed to have risen above all the others, and her name was obviously Olympias, and she seems to have been quite the, the figure, quite the character, quite the interesting person. Olympias, like many powerful women of her day, was actually a young lady who was used by her father as a political alliance with King Philip. She was the daughter of King Epirus, and she was joined with Philip for national security reasons so that the Macedonians wouldn't conquer her father's people. The only problem with Olympias was that she was not very docile. She was not a Proverbs 31 woman. She was actually a bit of a fighter. In fact, been had one small problem And that is that when her father introduces her to Philip and gives her hand in marriage to Philip, it seems like she may have already been pregnant. And so she goes on to tell her new husband, King Philip of Macedonia, about this this expectancy. And she tells him, you should not worry about this because this conception actually just took place the night before we were married. It took place last night. And she tells him that she was actually an innocent bystander in all of this, that she was simply lying in her bed asleep on the eve of their marriage when she was suddenly struck by a thunderbolt. And that thunderbolt spread far and wide over her, and it actually sealed her womb. And the product of that thunderbolt was a child by the god king Zeus, and that child was going to be half man and half divine. Well, Philip thought, this seems like a reasonable explanation to me, And he said that he had a similar dream that same night, and that during his dream, uh, the night before their nuptials, that he had dreamed that Olympias' wife was, or Olympias' womb had been sealed. In fact, he saw an engraved image of a devouring lion, and he took this as those around the royal family took it. They interpreted these things to be a sign from the gods, that this child that would be born to Olympias and Philip was divine in conception and nature but also set apart by the gods to expand the Macedonian Empire. 
Now, you want to talk about having high expectations for your kids, Philip and Olympias are leading the charge, right? From there, the legend then begins to grow. On the day of Alexander's birth, Philip becomes the first absentee father. Instead of being there in the delivery room with Olympias, instead, his army is laying siege to the city of Padidia. And as those events are unfolding, as he's laying siege to new conquered ground, he receives word from one of his generals that they have just defeated the combined armies of the Illyrians and the Paeonians. And not only that, because the kingdom never rests, apparently, while one general is fighting the Illyrians and, and King Philip is laying siege over here, apparently they had time to send their treasured athletes to compete in the Olympic Games. And so Philip, while getting word about the birth of his son, also gets word that his masterful horses have won the races in the Olympic Games. And as, as with any other great old war story, the legend would need some sort of supernatural touch. And so then he is informed that on the very same day, the temple of Artemis in Ephesus is actually caught fire. One of the seven wonders of the world has been burned down to the ground. And one of the king's spiritualists explains, this is not bad news, but this is actually good news. See, the reason that the temple of Artemis has been burned to the ground is because Artemis is not present at the temple because he is attending to the birth of your son, Alexander. Being a child of promise is kind of one thing, and Alexander is quickly becoming that child of promise with the legends growing about him all the way from his conception to his birth. But King Philip knows that if he's going to be a good father, you've got to nourish that child's ambition, right? To be the best that he can be and to live up to all of those potentials. And so nothing will be withheld in Philip's mind from Alexander, from young Alexander. He'll raise him in royalty. He gives him a proper education. Teaches him how to read and to write and to do arithmetic and to understand the stars of the heavens. And even he was in band, apparently, as he learns a musical instrument. He's, in fact, given the best teachers of the day. In fact, he's tutored by the mathematician and philosopher Aristotle because nothing is to be withheld from this child. But Philip also knows, as a great king and ruler in his own right, that all the reading and writing and arithmetic and playing the trumpet in band is not enough to uh, expand your kingdom. And so Alexander is to be given a military education as well. He's brought under the private tutelage of the great Macedonian general, a man by the name of Cletus the Black. Why don't we name kids like this anymore? I wish we would do this. Let's go back to that. Let's have some more. Let's name the next one Cletus the Black. Uh, he was not only taught by, brought under the tutelage of the great Macedonian general, but from there then he was put under the instruction of a strict disciplinarian by the name of Leonidas and, Lys and Lysimachus of Archanania, right? You're like, I don't know. It doesn't matter really, right? At the age of 10, all these educations and disciplinarians and military prowess are starting to show their fruits, and the Macedonians see for the very first time that indeed Alexander must be something more than just an ordinary boy. He shows them that he has control even over nature itself. How does he show them that? Well, a Thessalonian trader shows up on Philip's doorstep one day, and he tells him that he's bought a, a horse, and he would like to sell it. It would be his great honor to sell this horse to Philip. And just make a few dollars on the side. And so Philip comes and he looks at this horse. And this horse is amazing. He's strong. And he's built, you know, like a, like a brute ox with, a, with the body type of a horse. He, Philip can see that this horse is really something fantastic. The only problem.
And he orders the animal to be taken away, presumably to made it be made into glue sticks for little Alexander's craft projects at school. And Philip, uh, uh, seeing all this, Alexander decides maybe he has some power over the horse. And so he begs his father not to have the horse shot and killed. And so he goes over to the horse and he begins talking to it and leading it around. You see, somehow Alexander figured out that the horse was scared by its own shadow. And so he begins to talk to the horse and lead him around and lead him away from his own shadow. And eventually, then he hops up on the horse and begins to ride this marvelous beast. Philip, overcome with the pride of a great father, right? Tears flowing down his eyes, kisses his son on the cheek, and he turns to him, saying to him and all the crowd gathered, My boy, you must find a kingdom big enough for your ambitions because Macedon is far too small for you. Alexander would take his words to heart. I'm going to skip the next 10 years of history. They're unimportant for our message this morning. He ascends to the throne of Macedon about at the age of 20, and he's riding his faithful horse that he has calmed some 10 years earlier. He named him Bucephalus, which I think if I remember right is roughly translated ox's head or something like that. It was to speak of how big and brute he was. And he mounts Bucephalus, and he takes control over his father's kingdom, and he begins his prowess of conquering the known world. In order to do that, though, the first thing you have to do is you've got to deal with dissidents, right? Being the responsibility of a new king, you've got to shore up all of those people who don't like you or who do not like your father. And so he does that, and then he decides, maybe I'll expand our borders just a little bit. And so in the spring of 335, he sets out to the Balkans, and there he defeats the Thracians, the Illyrians, and the Athenians. And he gets to the end of all of that, and many young kings would have said, you know, we've expanded our borders, we've gotten rid of our troublemakers and those that would give us any problems. Let's just quit there. Let's just rest. I mean, after all, Alexander, this is a fairly vast environment. But Alexander decides in 334, at the ripe old age of 21, that no, he needs to pick a fight with the imperial dominance of the Persian Empire. And so he sets sail to defeat them. Now, Putting yourself back in history, that's not a small undertaking for a young king of 21 years of age. The Persians were the largest empire in their day. They controlled much of the known world. In fact, military scholars estimate that when Alexander's army was at its strongest and met the Persians, that he was outnumbered at best five to one. But you see, the young Alexander, he didn't understand the word defeat. It was not in his vocabulary. He was a son of Zeus with a divine mission to conquer the world and expand Macedonian control. And so mounted upon his faithful steed, he loaded a ship, and he headed east from Greece to the Hell's Point Strait, where it was said that the first thing he did upon disembarkation was he thrust his spear into the ground, fell to a knee, and he thanked the gods for his new territory, having not even fought a battle. But the Persians, they said, you know, not so fast, young ruler. We're not going to just give this land to you. So outnumbering Alexander by such a great force, some 400,000 troops to 80,000, many historians believe in that moment the Persians thought, we're going to crush this little pipsqueak, and they underestimated their enemy. Displaying why he would live on in history as perhaps the greatest military tacticianer of all time, Alexander began his greatest moments. He divided his small forces into even smaller units, and he made them mobile and fast so that they could attack the enemy before the enemy would expect it in unexpected places and 
cause such, uh, uh, such chaos and such uh, 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 fear that they would not even know how to react even if they were a much mightier force. Using hit-and-run tactics, they pierced through cities and Persian troops with precision and speed. In fact, many of his tactics are still even used to this day. They're taught even still in America at West Point. When the Persians realized that they, maybe this was a more serious threat than they had originally envisioned, they came up with a plan. It was a simple plan, two little parts to it. First of all, they invented what would become known as the scorched earth doctrine. The Soviet Union would employ this in World War II. Basically, they decided that an army that could not be fed was an army that could not fight. And so they decided to starve the Macedonian army. Whether they knew it or not at the time, what's interesting about this fact is that when Alexander left Macedonia and came, crossed the strait and came into the Persian Empire, he had actually made a point to leave with only 30 days worth of rations, a battle that would surely take years if, uh, to, to win. Alexander was ill-prepared, at least for it, and some scholars believe they knew this, and so they began to burn their towns and their farms, effectively believing that they could starve the army into submission. Either the army would retreat because they had no food, or they would be so weak from their uh, from their uh, from their weakness. They would be so weak from having not eaten that they would be easily defeated. Second part of the Persian plan was that they would consolidate their forces and they would gather them around their most prominent and powerful weapon. The Persians were known for being the people of the chariot. They were known for these mighty chariots that they brought to war. If I were to put it in a fairly modern context, it would be like when the Third Reich introduced the Tiger tank. They were thought to be unstoppable, unbeatable, with powerful horses and spikes that protruded from the wheels. An apt chariot team was said to be able to kill ten men in a single engagement, circle back around. So that means that Alexander's force of 80,000 isn't really going against 400,000, but something more like 2 million or 2.5 million with their upgrades in technology. That reality alone would strengthen the Persian army almost tenfold against this uh, rubble-rousing, trouble-making Macedonian. The Persians had specialized in the chariot warfare, and they'd perfected this particular form of art, and they thought there was no way Alexander could win. But Alexander, you know his name today, and he goes down as one of the greatest commanders in history for a reason. Knowing how his enemy would fight and knowing them well, he decided he would devise his own plan. First thing he did was he built a supply chain across the conquered towns so that food and rations could be shipped directly through the Straits of Macedonia. The reason he had only brought 30 days with him is because he wanted his troops to be able to move with such speed that nobody else could keep up with them. And so he establishes this corridor, as it were, a supply chain that is shipping food directly from Macedonia all along to his army, and he's never allowing his, uh, his fast army to get so far past that, 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 that chain that they outrun their supplies. Second thing he does is instead of engaging the Persians on the battlefields, he does something unique for his day. He decides that he will wait for the Persian armies at places like riverbanks and the edges of streams and creeks. Seemed really foolish idea to his generals. They thought, Alexander, don't you know that wars are fought out in open terrain? They're fought on mountains. They're fought in groves. They're fought in pastures. You don't fight a battle in streams. But that strategy was pretty simple. He 
looked at the chariots and he said, you know, those things look awfully slow when they're trying to catch, uh, cover a, a body of water. They, they can't seem to really fight in that type of terrain. The horses don't like water. And then by dividing his army up into those smaller units, when they would try to cross those river edges, then Alexander would send in those small mobile units and they would surround the enemy quickly, destroy them so that they would have to go back, even though they were superior in strength, and retreat and try to come up with a new game plan. And then Alexander would just move on to the next defensible area. He also had one other ace up his sleeve while all this was going on. He did something that the Persians didn't know to do and the Roman Empire would do with even greater excellence. And that was that as Alexander moved through the conquered regions, the cities and the areas that he would take over in the Persian Empire, he remembered the teachings of his tutor Aristotle and his philosophizing. Instead of annihilating every conquered town, he would find particular towns that had gripes against the Persian Empire. And he would find those towns and regions who were not all that thrilled with the ruler of Persia. And he would treat them instead of meanly and annihilate them. He would treat them with kindness and he would welcome them in. And in fact, he would even welcome in their culture. And many of his generals would take on some of their women as wives. And so by doing so, what he did was he ingratiated himself to these conquered people so that they actually began to join his armies in the fight. And so that as he is moving further into Persian territory... He's not actually losing strength, but he's actually gaining numbers all along the way until eventually he's got the numerical advantage. Alexander is one of the finest military commanders in world history. His military genius and ingenuity continue on in the large armies and superpowers of today. But historians say that it actually may have been one more controversial move that it actually secured his victory in Asia long before he had done any of those things. You see, when Alexander arrived on the other side of the House Point Strait, his army was pretty tired. Some historians say that his army was already beginning to plan a coup and overthrow him. They didn't really want to fight anymore. They'd been fighting for some year and a half. In fact, in a year and a half span, it's believed that they had fought some 112 battles. And so they were weary and worn out. Not only that, but the Hell's Point Strait was an important body of water. It stretched some 38 miles, but at the same time, it was actually very, very narrow. At its widest point, it was some three miles. And so as his army is sailing their ships, and even as they disembark into Persian territory, as they look back over their shoulder, they see home. Simple terms, this is a demoralized army that Alexander is leading. And so they are already thinking, how can we throw, overthrow this ruler and stop the war and the fight? We have enough territory in itself. Alexander knew that as the soldiers turned over their shoulders and they looked back and they saw their homes that they had left, knowing that they would not go back to those homes for years and many of them would not even ever get the opportunity to be re returned because they would die in the fields of battle, he knew that there was a sense of regret that would begin to overtake the morale of his soldiers. They were tired. They were a spent force. And if they charged into battle with home on their mind, that sense of regret would ultimately lead them to defeat. So what did Alexander do in that moment? Well, his actual first order on Persian soil was that he, after he had disembarked his army and they had positioned themselves against the Persian armies, one historian says he gathered his men and he ordered the ships to be burned. And he said to them, we will either go home in Persian ships or we will not go home at all. He knew that in order to win the war, 
the tr soldiers could have no option for retreat. Today, we live in a vastly different world with a vastly different mindset, don't we? Every decision the guppies make is one that is couched oftentimes with security, even if it at times it's a false sense of security. We rarely make any decision, and for good reason, without having talked about all of the options that are available to us and considered all of the information that's in front of us. In fact, even Jesus, when speaking in Mark chapter 8, verses 34 down to verse 36, spoke about those who would follow him in the kingdom. And he described them as though they were men who were building a house. And he says, who goes to build a house and doesn't first consider the cost, what it takes to build that house? Because if he doesn't consider what it would cost to build that house, he'll be made a fool of. He'll be a mockery to his neighbors because having built half the house, he'll have to stop because he's run out of resources, emphasizing the importance of one who is coming to Christ, making sure that he fully understands what it is that that commitment to Christ entails, what it will cost him, what his sacrifices are. That mindset has filled our thinking in our culture and in our churches. We are not often uh, prone to taking risks. We are risk-averse, aren't we? We seek to minimize any potential cost and pain. We try to figure out ways to make sure that our children don't have to sacrifice, that they don't lose, that they don't experience pain. The only problem with that type of mindset is that it often leads to something else, and that is paralyzation. We become like men who sat down to figure out what the cost of building a house was, and they turned to their spouse and they said, you know, maybe we've saved for 10 or 15 years to build this house, and maybe, yes, we have the money to do so, but what if the economy turns bad? What if the laborers decide they're not going to show up? What if something gets built wrong and we have to go back and redo it? There's more money in that. And what if a bank decides that they're going to call in our loan? And what happens if we aren't able to pay the loan? What if the HOA doesn't approve of our plans? Or what if the neighbors aren't friendly? Imagine if we had to move in next to the Howisons, right? We go beyond considering the cost of a particular position or decision and oftentimes we move into a state of paralyzation because, well, simple terms, it's just easier to stay with what we got. It's easier to do nothing than it is to try to advance forward in faith and in risk. Unfortunately, that mindset has often crept into the kingdom of God and His work. We're told by Jesus that the gates of hell cannot stand against the kingdom of Christ. You see, as Jesus said those words, He imagined an offensive position for His church. That is, that the church of God would be on the march of God, moving for the kingdom of God against the enemies of God. That as his army was built, that we would march against hell itself to prevent the enemy and his demons and angels and powers from bringing any other person into his kingdom, into hell itself. And he says that when we arrive at the very gates of hell, the demons shall not be able to withstand our offensive pressure. But whether it's fear of wanting uh, or wanting to bet, hedge our bets, the church in 2022, well, we've often refused to follow the marching orders, and instead, we've determined that it's easier to sit at home and wait for the enemy to come to us instead of marching toward his ground. After all, military strategists tell us that it's easier to defend your own ground than it is to go after new ground. I was thinking about this a little bit last week, and it reminded me of what happened after England and France declared war on Germany. When Germany uh, invaded Poland 
England and France had promised that they would declare war, and so true to their word they did, and the English sent over some 400,000 expeditionary forces to northern France to link up with their counterparts, the Allies, the French, on what became known as the Maginot Line. It was this system of defense built across the northern part of France. You see, France did not want to return back to what they'd experienced during World War I and the trench warfare, and so they built this system of defense that basically said, you know what, we may not be able to take steps into Germany, but we will at least prevent you from ever being able to come back into France. And so they formed this system of defenses known as the Maginot Line, and the, and the, and the British joined the French there to stand against the Germans. What took place, historians refer to as the phony war. It was a time, basically, where the French and the British stood with binoculars upon the fortifications of the Maginot Line, and they looked down upon the Germans, and they said, I wonder what they're doing over there. I wonder if they're trying to prepare for something. I wonder if they're really going to try to invade. Uh, surely not. In fact, I was listening to one thing the other night, and a former uh, a British uh, vet said that it was almost as though they were on holiday, Brother Cam. They were playing games. They were riding on the beaches on motorcycles. They thought all of this was just going to blow over. I mean, this didn't really seem like a war. Even though they had declared war, it didn't seem like a war. The only problem was is that while the Allies sat idly by, behind the bunkers of their defenses, the enemy didn't stop. The enemy was scheming. So while the Allies sat idly by, believing that their defenses were strong enough, the enemy drew up an audacious plan which would overwhelm them, not in a matter of years or months, but actually in a matter of days. And the Third Reich would take over the vast uh, 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 areas of the European continent. I wondered if that is not exactly what has taken place in, our, in America in the last few years. Even yesterday, I made the comment to someone, it seems like things have changed so fast. I wonder if the height of evangelical success in the late 1980s, early 90s, all the way into the early 2000s, I wonder if it didn't make the church of God in America sit back a little bit. I wonder if we just didn't decide in those moments, maybe not consciously, but subconsciously, I wonder if we didn't decide, you know, I don't really think there is a battle that is waging. I don't really think there is a war that is waging. Maybe we can just sit back and defend our land, as it were. Maybe we can defend our fortified positions. Did we, maybe in the church of America, just decide that we would just step back because all of these rumors of a, of a war being going on, that's just all rumors. That's not really taking place. And I wonder if in 2022 we are not just now reaping the reward of that mindset. As we see that the enemy was not sitting idly by, but he was strategizing, planning, and all of a sudden it feels like today we've become surrounded by the darkness in every corner. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is one of the more interesting chapters in all of the New Testament, in my opinion. I could give you a thousand reasons why I think that, but I'm going to limit them to two this morning. The first is that I find the context of 2 Corinthians 4 very interesting. You see, Paul was writing to the churches of Corinth, which is obvious by the name of the letter that is given to us. But the, church, but the churches of Corinth are living in a very interesting city. The city of Corinth was a part of a developing Roman Empire as it continued to expand, and it was really a bursting urban environment there in Corinth. Corinth was a leading commercial center in Greece. It was populated with people and customs from all over the Roman Empire. 
I said that Alexander started something by ingratiating himself to conquered peoples. The Romans did this superbly because not only did they ingratiate themselves to conquered people, but they actually took those conquered people and they scattered them abroad. They scattered them all across the Roman Empire so that, number one, they could not form groups of dissident, but also so that the Roman culture would so saturate them that they forgot that they weren't Romans. Corinth is a part of this picture. It's a metropolis, if you will. It's a place with a people, a citizenship that is diverse politically, culturally, even on spiritual issues. If I could put it in a modern context, it would be like saying that Corinth was a little bit like New York City. It's a bustling city. It's a, certainly a crime-ridden city. It's a place where debauchery and depravity abound, but it's a city where culture is prevalent in many corners, where you could go and find certain avenues and places where you could find people of your group, and literally the globe is, is at the doorstep of the Corinthian people. It's a place where jobs abound, and in many ways, it becomes kind of a gateway to the rest of the Roman Empire and to an entire new world, just like New York City has been called the gateway into the new world, into the United States of America. In that environment, you might guess that the Christian population was faced with several difficult challenges. Now, certainly there was opportunity for gospel advancement. When the world is at your doorstep, well, you can reach the world with the gospel, can't you? You see, just in my neighborhood alone, there are all these different ethnicities and all these different people groups. If I reached my neighborhood, I think at one point we did the, the math and we would reach some 81 parts of the world just in our neighborhood in Sedalia. Imagine how much more so in a place like New York City or in Corinth, the world itself is at the doorstep of the Corinthian church. So there's that opportunity for massive gospel advancement. But there's also the challenges that come with a diverse and multifaceted people group. See, there in Corinth, you have Jews, you have Greeks, you have monotheists, you have pantheists, you have polytheists, you have pagans. And even in the midst of all of that, you have philosophers and even some God-fearers, as Paul will refer to them. With all of those different views, often the spiritual understandings of the people all of a sudden began to get affected by the culture more so than the preaching that they heard in the Christian churches. See, to use a quote from Charles Swindoll, he says, if you took a white glove and threw it down into a, into a pile of mud, into the mud, the mud doesn't get glovier. You see, the church is supposed to be the light in the midst of the darkness. We're supposed to be ex uh, uh, putting our influence on the culture, but what we've seen in the history of time is that oftentimes the church has acquiesced itself to the culture instead of the other way around. And that's one of the challenges that faces the Corinthian people. The Corinthian church, all of a sudden with all these diverse people having heard the gospel and said that they believe, they're gathering together in, in specific locations and the cultures that they're bringing with them are beginning to impact and infect the gospel that they had received and believed instead of the gospel impacting and affecting their views. That leads me to the second thing that really inter in interests me in 2 Corinthians, and that is... That when you look at it in that context, the message that Paul proclaims in the midst of that is so timely. It's something we need to hear today. Because in the midst of the religious mysticism, the paganism, and all of the eclectic views, basically what Paul does to the Corinthians is he preaches a very direct and exclusive message. He tells them there is one God revealed in the person of Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners 
And if you believe in him, we must submit ourselves to his law and his standard. That message was basically on the exclusivity of Christ, that Jesus Christ is, is alone our way to our creator. And apparently, as Paul preaches this message, and that all these other things, that they were wrong and that you should not live by them, as Paul preaches that message, apparently some of the Corinthians said, you know, that doesn't really sit well with us. That doesn't resonate with us, Paul. We are a tolerant people, right? They wanted to accept Christ, but the Corinthians, by all accounts, decided we'll accept Christ with this hand, but we're going to hold on to all these things in the culture with the other hand. So the problems begin in the Corinthian church, and divisions are formed, right? Because, you know, dividing into sects of people and, and arguing and fighting amongst yourselves is not something new to Cornerstone Baptist Church. It's been happening in the history of the church, right? And the Corinthians begin to divide themselves and they form these divisions. And they decide that the best way to solve all of their problems, are you ready? It's as, it's an, as age old time as time itself, it's a tactic as old as time itself. They decided, well, the best thing we can do, the real problem, the reason we have all these divisions, isn't because of us. It's his fault. It's the leader's fault, right? And so they begin to attack the Apostle Paul. They thought in simple terms if they could re destroy the reputation of Paul, well, then they would destroy his message, and they would have control over the Christian community in Corinth, and they could determine their own rules and do things their own way. What's interesting to me in all of that is that Paul really loved these people. I might have gotten a little more frustrated. Uh, I might have you know, rung, rung the towel or thrown in my hands, but Paul, he obviously loves these Corinthians. In fact, he writes to them to tackle the issues that they raise. And in my view, as you turn into the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, what you find is you find a pastor's heart coming out wanting to draw a people back to the commitment of the gospel that had been proclaimed to them. He begins by telling them that they had nothing to boast in. In fact, he tells them, you can go ahead and attack me. I don't have anything to boast in. If I were going to boast in anything, the only thing I could boast in is the work of Jesus Christ to forgive sinners of whom I am a part. In other words, what Paul essentially opens his letter with is, I've got nothing to boast about except that God has saved me. God's grace in my life. And then in that way, in chapter 1 and verse 12, he tells them, that he can boast about them because they too have believed in the gospel. They have received God's grace. Tells them in verse 15 of chapter 1 that he'd hoped that he would return to them so that they might again experience that same grace and be able to boast. Paul looked at Corinth and he says, you're not too far gone. He says, I want to come back to you because I believe that if I come back to you and I proclaim the gospel... If I preach the gospel, God will reform his church. He'll revitalize his church. He'll revive his church, and then that will revive your community. Corinth itself will be saved by the gospel, and then we'll really have something to boast in, God's marvelous ability to save a city. But then in chapter number 2, we see, verse number 1, that these things are not possible because when the apostle had wanted to return, apparently he was disappointed. Apparently, he'd visited them before, and a previous visit did not go well. He, in fact, he refers to it in the ESV translation as his painful visit. He thought that they would welcome him and that they would welcome the message of the gospel, but when he showed up, they didn't applaud him. They didn't say, hey, we're glad you're here. Preach as long as you like. They said, we don't want you here. What he found in Corinth 
was not just a church in turmoil, but he found a world itself in chaos and in turmoil. In a few short sentences or in a few short phrases, the Corinthian church was a church that lived with regret. As Paul looked at them, he saw them as people who, despite all of their outward proclamations, they were a people who had regretted that they had followed Christ. They were a people who acted as though they had regretted the decision to follow after Jesus. They were a people who lived with reserves. They didn't want to fully embrace Christ and His gospel. They gave lip service to such, but they really wanted to hold on to the ways of the world and the culture and the cultural mindsets at the same time as though that were possible. And they were a people who lived in retreat. They weren't impacting Corinth for the good of the gospel. They weren't impacting Corinth for the kingdom purposes. Instead, they set up factions within themselves and they fortified their own kingdoms as though this was just ground that needed to be defended. Beloved, with all that I am, that mindset is anathema to the apostle. As he moves through this message and he sets the stage for our short series in chapter number 4, he sets, he sets this stage with just a single, sweeping, beautiful sentence. He says, therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose hearts. Quickly this morning, I want to set the stage for this entire message by examining those three simple phrases which make up this magnificent statement. First of all, he writes, therefore, having this ministry, what is he talking about? What ministry is he talking about? What is ministry? I asked my men this this week, and they concluded that ministry is your services. It's your opportunity to be a part of something that is bigger than yourself. It's an opportunity to be a part of kingdom work, right? It's what you do. It's what you offer to God. It is your gifts and talents and display for something that is greater than your own self. Well, what is that service? What is that opportunity? What is that usefulness in the kingdom that Paul is referring to as he opens up this glorious chapter? And to answer that question, we don't have to go very far back. We need only to turn one page to the previous chapter. In chapter 3, Paul lays out his purpose for life and his purpose to the Corinthians. And it's so beautifully simple, beloved. He says to them that his purpose in life and his purpose to them is the revelation of the gospel in Jesus Christ. In other words, when Paul looked at his life, he saw nothing special about himself. He saw himself merely as a man who had found the light in a world of increasing darkness. He saw himself as a man who had been previously blindfolded by cultural worldviews, who had been blindfolded by the evil around him, by the depravity around him, and as a man who had been blindfolded by these things, as one who had had the blindfold ripped off in front of him so that he could begin to see the world through fresh eyes, through new eyes. Having that blindfold removed, he saw himself as one who could now for the first time see the real beauty of God as it is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, God come into the world to save sinners. In a world with no answers, a world that was at war with its creator, Paul is making some marvelous statements in chapter 3, especially in verse 4, that the Christian somehow is different. He's not different than anybody else. The Christians all have the same difference in them, and that is that they may come before their God with confidence through Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying to them in this moment that those who have confessed faith in Jesus Christ that we don't have to hide from our Creator like a child who has done something wrong hides from his or her parents. 
from the impending doom of their punishment. Instead, he says that with bold confidence in Christ, we can await the arrival of our Creator because He will not come in judgment against us. No, He will come to welcome His own because we were bought in the sacrificial death of His Son, Jesus. See, Paul saw the world in chaos. And all of a sudden, it's as though he's saying that in Christ, for the first time, it all began to make sense. Beloved, what he's doing in this moment is not some simple theological treatise. He's telling you how the gospel has literally changed the way he views the world. It's what he's outlined in Romans that we've preached on for so long. And that is that the gospel is supposed to impact every part about me. It's supposed to impact my family. It's supposed to impact my finances. It's supposed to impact my politics. It's supposed to impact literally every part of my existence. Not one shred of my identity is to be left unchanged by the gospel. And in that, all of a sudden, you begin to see the world from a different view. And you begin to understand things, not as you once understood them, but you understand them through the lens of the Creator, the one who actually set these things into motion. And as Paul looked at the gospel, and he looked at the culture around him that was in chaos and turmoil, he looked at that and he said, you know, that's not the real problem. The problem isn't that men are killing men. The problem isn't the relationships that are described in Romans chapter 1. The problem isn't the world that is falling apart in chaos. No, that chaos is a symptom of a greater problem. The world itself is in this unending battle because the people who inhabit that world are engaged in unending battles within them own selves. They're engaged in an unending battle of their own conscience, an unending battle against each other. They're engaged in a battle against God Himself. They don't want to submit to some higher authority to their Creator. And because of that, that chaos bleeds from that broken heart out into the world, and we see the depravity around us. In other words, as Paul looked at it, He saw a field of war, and in the field of war, there are always casualties. And the casualties that he saw in Corinth are the casualties we experience today, and that is a society that is thrown into depravity. Simple terms, the world was ablaze because the people were unsettled within their own hearts. He saw the ills of their depraved culture as a result of the people who were uneased in their own hearts and minds as they stood before their Creator. A couple of weeks ago, I used the illustration of a rumor about a student identifying as a feline, and I made a point to say it wasn't a true rumor, but this week I got corrected, and it is true, just not here in Missouri. It's in Australia, apparently. But the point I tried to make on that day was that when you heard that rumor, when you heard that rumor, there was a part of me that goes, yeah, it makes sense. And that is the culture in which we now live. We live in a time where the depravity and the chaos is so abounding around us that it really no longer surprises us, does it? We just expect to encounter the darkness everywhere we turn, but there's nothing that is left untouched by it. Beloved, not much is what I'm trying to say has changed over 2,000 years. The culture around us is a symptom. The reason a student would do that, the reason we see the chaos around us It's because men and women are broken. We live in a very broken world. And they're broken first internally. They don't have peace in their hearts because they're not at peace with their creator. 
And then they take that brokenness into the rest of the world and the society denigrates and falls apart around us. Therefore, the solution then, as Paul's view, would be the reality, the way you solve these problems is not a new educational reform or training, but how do you solve these problems? Well, you mend what is broken. And the only way to mend what is broken, if broken relationship with the Creator is the driving force behind all these things, and the only way that you solve that is by mending the relationship between man and his Creator. And the only way you can do that, Paul has argued in 2 Corinthians 3, is in Christ, the gospel itself. In other words, if I put it in layman's terms, if we want to reset in the nation, it doesn't begin in the White House. It begins with revival in God's house that spreads to our neighborhood houses, which feeds into the schoolhouses, which feeds into our employment houses. That's where real change begins to take place. To illustrate that, he takes the people back to Moses. We're not surprised by that, or at least we shouldn't be. Paul oftentimes goes back to his Jewish tradition and scholarly training And he specifically takes them back to a moment in time when God was forming that nation, that Israelite nation. And he's speaking to them, he's telling them, defining his law, his standard, how he wants them to live, giving them his expectation about how they should view themselves in light of who they were. They were his people. You see, when God brought his people out of Egypt, he never intended for them to bring the culture of Egypt with them into the new nation that he was building. And so it was important for God at the onset to clearly define, here's what my expectations are for you as my people. Here's my law. You operate according to these things. And so he takes them to Mount Sinai where he speaks to Moses and he gives him the law. And then Moses is deliver that to the people. Now, there's an interesting exchange in all of this, and I've preached on it many times and just preached on it this past Easter, so I will not go back and re-preach that. But you'll remember that the first thing that happens is Moses is speaking with God, but God will not allow him to see his face, right? There comes a point at which Moses says, I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. I want to see your face. And God says, you can't do that, Moses, because nobody can see my face and live. In other words, the Israelites, if you saw me, you would be so consumed by my holiness that you would not be able to withstand it. You would be burnt up. In other words, the Israelites, they will be able to know God through his law, but God was saying essentially to Moses in this moment, there will still always be some barrier between us. Because if there were not this barrier, then I would consume all of them. There would be some veil, as it were. There will always be something, even if it's a mediator, even if it's a man, there will be something that stands between me and them, or else I would consume them. Second thing is that when God finally allows Moses to catch just a small glimpse of his glory, he does so by allowing him just to catch the backside. See, he tells Moses that his countenance would, would, uh, would, uh, would be consumed, that he would be consumed if he saw all of him, But Moses is unrelenting, and he says, but I really want to see you. And so finally God says, I'll allow you to see just the back piece of it. And when that happens, something interesting unfolds. And that is that Moses begins to glow. Like a mirror reflecting the brightness of the sunlight upon us, he begins to glow. In fact, he glows so much that when he comes off of the mountain, the people cannot bear to look at him. I feel like Moses a lot of times on Sunday mornings, right? Some of you will get that later. It was as if they were trying to stare at the sun as they looked upon Moses, and the brightness of God's radiance were so bright 
the people said, man, that's too much. The apostle draws upon that important historical moment. If you look back in chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, beginning in verse 7 to the close of the chapter, and he sees the world through this lens. He's telling the people that he sees the world as, it, as, as though it were at war because there is a longing within the people to be close to God, their creator, but there seems to always be some barrier between them and they just can't figure it out. And that struggle to figure it out, that struggle to, to get past that barrier creates chaos and unsettledness in their hearts. And so they take it home to their families, they take it into their schools, they take it into their places of employment, they take it into their culture. That, 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 that burden, that tug of war as it were, to get into relationship with God has broken them, has, has created such chaos that they can do no other but bring that chaos into the culture, into the lives of the people around them. But then says Paul that this has changed for the Corinthians. <laughs> this has changed for you. He says, because you don't have that barrier anymore. They, by extension, us as well, they're able to stand in the presence of God. This is the beauty of the incarnation of Christ. The veil has been torn away. The barriers which once divided us from God have been removed, and we now can come directly into the presence of God in Christ Jesus. This is one of the promises that were given to us in Romans, that we may enter into God's presence through Christ, His coming into the world, through His sacrificial death and His subsequent resurrection. He satisfied God's holy anger and wrath. And now today, we can live in His presence by simple faith in Christ. We are not just merely welcomed into God's presence, but again, according to verse 7, we have a hope which makes us, I love this translation in the ESV, bold. I don't have to sit around and go, man, when are mom and dad going to get home and see what I've done wrong? I don't have to sit around in this life and wonder, when will the Creator pierce the skies and determine that I have done all these things wrong and sit in judgment over me? No, by faith in Christ, Paul is proclaiming, all barriers have been removed. We may have boldness to come into the very presence of God. That boldness, though, was not given to us, was not given to him simply to sit around and to do nothing. No, he argues there that this boldness was given to him as an opportunity, a ministry, if you will, to go and to bring other people into the presence of God through Christ as well. In other words, what Paul has argued in chapter 3 is that he saw himself as one who was saved by God. So that he might do the same, that he might go and save others, that he might go and offer Christ to others as well. That was his ministry. As he saw it, to the Corinthians, God saved him so that he could go and proclaim to them the good news of the hope of the gospel. In a word, he saw himself as a minister or a pastor of reconciliation. I can bring you, I can tell you how to be brought into a right relationship with your Creator. The Corinthians were at war with each other because they were at war within themselves, because they were at war with their creator, God himself. But God had given Paul as a mediator to 
which Paul would give to the Corinthians, and that was the person and work of Jesus Christ. God had given Christ to bring peace to a world at war. And for the apostle, he was not unique in this. If God had saved him to bring Christ to the Corinthians, then he was saving the Corinthians to bring Christ to other families, to other friends, to other co-workers, and to other nations. Beloved, this was his view of the gospel, and it must be ours as well. God saves us, God saves one, God saved you, not to sit, sulk, and sour, but God has saved you so that you may go and bring another to Jesus Christ. That is the hope of reconciliation, the ministry that has been handed down from the apostles to the Corinthians to us. It's what brings him to the forefront of his opening expression. We have been given this ministry, having this ministry. And then he adds the plural possessive pronoun, we. We is you and me. By preaching the gospel to the Corinthians, the apostle was saying, you are invited to join me in the mission. If Christ has reconciled you to your creator, then you are invited to bring others along in the journey. You are invited to come join him in his kingdom work and bring somebody else along the way. Beloved, if you have confessed faith in Christ, that message still rings out to us. God did not give you that faith for the purpose of sitting around. Each and every person in this room today, you have a job to do. You have a role to play in the kingdom. You have a responsibility before a holy God of bringing others to Jesus Christ in your life. Why are we not more passionate about it? Well, because, secondly, that job, he says, we have received by the mercy of God. You'll recall our discussion in Romans, and I'm almost done. Justice is when I get what I deserve. Grace is when I get what I don't deserve. And I said that mercy is when I don't get what I deserve. See, beloved, when I apply for a job, I have to fill out an application, or perhaps you submit a resume, and on that application or that resume, I tell that future employer my work history, my education, my experience, all of it meant to detail my ability to do the job that I'm being hired for. Essentially, Paul is suggesting that if we applied to work in God's kingdom, we would be woefully unqualified. I don't have the assets today. I don't have the tools necessary for the job that is in front of us. And what is that job in front of us? To reach the nations with the hope of Christ. That is the ministry. To reach my family with Christ. I do not have the tools necessary. I do not have the assets necessary to reach my community with Christ. I do not have the tools necessary. I do not have the assets necessary. I do not have the experience necessary to reach our neighborhoods for Christ. I do not have what it takes. I cannot do it. Nor can you. In fact, by using the word mercy, the apostle is suggesting not only that I am unqualified, But he's suggesting in a legal sense that I am not only unqualified, but I don't even deserve the opportunity. Every once in a while, an employer will take a chance on somebody unqualified. Maybe they sense in that person something more than is written on a piece of paper. They might think to themselves, you know, that, that person possesses some qualities. Maybe I can't even put all my fingers on them of being a great leader. They just lack training and experience. So maybe if I just give them the right training, that person will become this phenomenal employee. But Paul is saying in this moment, you and I not only don't possess the training, the expertise, and the ability, but by introducing the legal term of mercy, he's saying that you and I are undeserving of the opportunity to be a part of his kingdom. 
It'd be like going and applying for a job and the employer laughing at you saying, you really thought you would come in here and apply here? You worked for my competitor. You worked for my enemies. You don't deserve this opportunity. See, beloved, I don't deserve to be God's ambassador to my family. I don't deserve to be God's ambassador to a city. I don't deserve God's opportunity to be his ambassador in a, in a neighborhood, in a school, in an employment opportunity. I don't even deserve to be in the kingdom at all. What I deserve this morning is God's righteous wrath on me. But in Christ, I don't get what I deserve. You see, in Christ, I avoid God's judgment because it was paid for in Him. And so essentially in this moment, what Paul is saying is that serving in God's kingdom is not a burden, beloved. Far from it. Serving in God's kingdom is a delight and a blessing because I have been given not only the opportunity to avoid penalty and punishment, but I have been given the blessing of being able to go and to get others to come with me. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you thought it was a blessing when you were called and asked to serve in kingdom business? When was the last time you thought it was a blessing when somebody said, I need you to serve in the children's department? When is the last time you thought it was a blessing when somebody called and said, you can give, why don't you give $10,000 towards this project? When was the last time you thought it was a blessing when Todd called and said, would you come on a youth trip with us? We need chaperones. When is the last time you thought it was a blessing when somebody came and said, I need you to serve by teaching others what you've been taught. I need you to teach a small group. When is the last time you thought it was a blessing to serve in the kingdom? Paul says, you don't deserve this, Corinthians. You deserve the exact opposite. And therefore, by extension, you should feel blessed that God would give you the opportunity to be a part of his kingdom business. That leads me to the third phrase. Finally, because God was merciful, because God gave me a job to do, and in doing that job, he says, I have the promise that I will not lose heart. That phrase, lose heart, it's not very difficult. We all understand it. It carries with it the connotations of fear, doubt. You lose heart, you start doubting abilities. You start losing your drive, your ambition. You start losing your passion for things. There are a great many things that cause me to lose heart, beloved, in my own life. Sometimes I lose heart because I look at things and the odds seem so overwhelming. I lose heart because the enemy seems so great. I lose heart because I've lost all ambition sometimes. It's just easier to rest. I lose heart because I believe that the cause might be lost. There's no way we can reform this. There's no way that we can revitalize this. There's no way to solve this. And sometimes if I'm to be perfectly honest this morning, I lose heart because I'm just scared. I'm scared that it might not work out. But the apostle issues a strong promise and he says, because we're doing something we're so undeserving of having been given the opportunity to do, because we're a part of kingdom business, we will not lose heart. The reason why, he'll detail in the lines that follow. He talks about being hard-pressed but not crushed, and having been defeated but not abandoned. But simply this morning, I'll tell you, we don't lose heart because I'm in possession of the greatest thing of all, and that is Jesus Christ this morning. I said the people of Corinth lived as though they had regrets. Maybe their commitment to Christ was the wrong commitment. Maybe they had 
given away too much to follow after him. Perhaps the gospel that had been preached to them wasn't complete. They probably even lost some family and friends over their choice to follow after Jesus. I said that they operated as people who had reserves. They wanted to hold on to Christ with one hand and then hold on to the world with the other. I said the people of Corinth lived as though they were people that had retreat as a real possibility. You know, maybe they got up in the morning and they thought, you know, if this thing with Christ doesn't work out, it's okay. I can always go back to what I was doing. Beloved, as I see the world fall apart around me, I wonder if we have not adopted the same mentality in America today. We live as those with regret. Sometimes we're captivated by the remembrance of the sins of our past. We wonder whether Christ is truly enough. We're paralyzed by past failure. I can't go back and change what happened yesterday. We hold on to reserves. Christ is great, but maybe we need to go need a backup plan. We'll hold to the gospel, but we won't burn the ships because we got to we got to get food over here, right? We'll hold on to the gospel, but we'll hedge our bets on better legislation and political maneuvering. We'll hold on to Christ, but we will avoid offense and strong stances because we don't dare stand out in the midst of a culture of darkness. And maybe we live as a people in retreat. Maybe we've adopted the stance that it's easier to live within the confines of our safe walls than to put ourselves out there. It's easier to not challenge the status quo. After all, they have a large army, don't they? It's easier to not advance. It's easier to just sit back. It's easier when we receive pushback to just quit, right? We've developed a mentality that says that if we get pushback on the convictions of our faith, that the only hospitable thing to do would be just to rescind them altogether. Just don't be the light. Beloved, with all that I am, the time of the phony war is over. The enemy has blitzkrieged our positions. And the only question is whether or not you want to fight in the battle. Do you see service as a burden? Do you see yourself as equipped for the fight? Do you even consider yourself as one who has a ministry? For the apostle, if you have Christ, you have marching orders. If you have Christ, you have marching orders. You've been listening to Pastor Chris Guffey preach through his series, No Regrets, No Reserve, No Retreat. Catch us next week for part two. If you'd like to know more about Cornerstone Baptist Church, you can visit us on the web at www.cornerstonesedalia.com.